Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Climate Podcast. It ends with us. We have a special guest here in the studio. However, I would like to introduce who else is in the studio. First up would be myself. I'm Jason Stevens, and I will be your host for this podcast. And I'll pass the mic over to Michael Graham. And I'm Troy Hewitt. Thank you, Troy. Yeah. And the bestest producer in the whole gosh darn world is sitting over there making sure all our sound is beautiful. That is Mr. Jay Smith. But with no further ado, uh, I would like for Michael to introduce our guest, if you wouldn't mind. Our author that we have on today, our guest is Darge Mail, author of four books, Beyond the Green Zone, Dispatches from the Unbedded Journalist, journalist in Occupied Iraq, The Will to Resist, Soldiers That Refuse to Fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, The Mass Destruction of Iraq, The Disintegration of a Nation, Why It's Happening and Who's Responsible, Cultural Cleansing in Iraq, Why Museums Were Looted, Libraries Burned, and Academics Murdered, and of course, the book that we'll be talking about today, End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in a Path of Climate Disruption. Uh, the story is published with Truth Out, The Guardian, The Independent, Foreign Policy and Focus, Tom Dispatch, Huffington Post, The Nation, and Al Jazeera, among others. And our guest today has been frequently on Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and has appeared on BBC and NPR, among numerous outlets. Dard was awarded the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Investigative Journalist Journalism in 2007 for his work in Iraq and in 2018 won the Izzy Award for Outstanding Achievement in Independent Media for his reporting on climate disruption. We're very pleased to welcome Dar Jamil. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. Dar, thank you for coming all the way from Port Townsend to be here with us today. Hanging out here in the lab. Uh, you know, we kind of hide ourselves in the, the underground bunker that we call the lab, but um, that's a heavy reading list, my friend. <laughs> Can you can you give us just a little insight into because you're when you write you're writing from the place that it's happening. Can you get into that a little bit? I know my next book should definitely be on gardening. I, I definitely need a break. <laughs> We're um, serious. But no, I've really it's just kind of fundamental journalism the way I see it is there is a crisis, you dispatch yourself to the front lines of said crisis and you see what's happening and you write about that and it's that simple and that's the model i used in iraq i knew it was absolute propaganda and nonsense what was being sold to the american people to justify an illegal and immoral invasion and the giant uh vacuum in the story was how is this impacting the iraqi people and so i went over there and started writing about it just to a few friends back in Alaska. And then by the end of that first trip, got hired to do some freelance journalism. And and 16 years later, here I am. But that's that's what I did. So I tried to give a voice to the voiceless and go over there and report where the silence was and and fill that void. And and that's kind of the model that I've used up to now and, and uh, with this current book. So I know that you've got that background of uh, you were embedded uh unembedded unembedded and so my question for you unembedded so my question for you is in that space how do you how do you separate 
the gut wrenching reality that you find and, you know, the work. Um, can you? You don't. I, I actually think uh, I, I hope my reporting is is as gut wrenching as it felt to me when I experienced it and have tried to convey that to people because that's the nature of the world today. And, and I think, you know, the sanitized corporate media version of insert name of topic here is why we're in this mess that we need to understand the depths of the crisis that we're in and the human impact of it. And it's almost always the lesser privileged, uh, poor people who are bearing the brunt of it. Uh, and of course all the other species. And I think we need to have a deep fundamental understanding and, and feel that in the depths of us of what this system is costing the planet. And that's how this all came about because Jason, you. Exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> it was actually during the big snowstorm we had here that I saw you on democracy now, um, which Amy commented on. It's like, thank you for, for coming through that snowstorm. And I saw you and I, and I picked up your book and it left me feeling like you describe. It left me feeling the impact of what's going on in the world with the climate. And I was so moved by the, the last statement that I just decided uh, I, this is what I have to focus on. I have to focus on the climate and I have to get involved. This is such a big topic that, it, that touches everyone, in particular those who are uh, marginalized and uh, traditionally people of color, the indigenous people. So I jumped into it full, full bore I would also like uh, that we help the listeners here understand what's in this book. Not necessarily going through the whole book, but uh, we're in a crisis. We are in a serious crisis, and Dar's book lays that out pretty well. Um, Michael, myself, and Troy are not experts by any means, which is why we bring people like Dar in, and we'd love it if you would tell us a little bit about what's in your book and, and what the crisis really is like that we're facing. Sure. So what I essentially did, as I alluded to earlier with how I approached reporting from Iraq, is I decided to figure out what some of the frontline places are in the climate crisis of where it's most obvious and happening the fastest. And so the model I used was I identified leading scientists in the field of where I, wherever I was going to go and ideally go out into the field with them and then have the science, which there's 20 something pages of citations in the book. Uh, so have the science uh, directly from the scientists, but then also write about it in a very personal way. Oftentimes, telling stories of this scientist himself and then always bringing my own visceral reactions and emotional reactions. And so some of those places, i.e. the title of the book, The End of Ice, I, glaciers have their own chapter. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Alaska, a lot of time around Washington State here, um, Glacier National Park in Montana, writing about that. I went to the Amazon rainforest with Dr. Thomas Lovejoy, the godfather of biodiversity. Uh, I, I went to St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs and hung out with indigenous folks there, writing about how they are taking it on the chin, how their subsistence lifestyle is under threat, literally, but from living in a collapsing food web in the northern Pacific because of warming ocean temperatures. I went to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and went out with scientists on the reef there, writing about how we are 
likely not going to have any functioning coral reefs anywhere on the planet by 2050. Uh, and South Florida for sea level rise, again, two leading scientists from University of Miami talking about how essentially uh, one of them told me, frankly, well, based on paleoclimate records, given that we've added um, a little bit more than 130 parts per million CO2 to the atmosphere, that equates to roughly 130 feet of sea level rise. So right now that's what's already baked into the system. And so these are some of the heart-wrenching, scary conclusions, you know, at the end of each of these chapters that we're looking at. And as far as glaciers, uh, the punchline on that is that in the lower 48, uh, United States, by 2100, we're on track to not have any glaciers anywhere in the lower 48. Uh, the Hindu Kush region of the Himalaya, uh, the, one of the biggest ice fields on the planet, also the head of several major Asian rivers, uh, all that ice and glaciers is is on track, likely to be gone by 2100. Uh, that means 1.5 billion people do not have water for drinking and irrigation. Where do those people go? What happens to those places where they go? Dot, dot, dot. So there are these then cascading effects that happen from all of these points of the crises that we're, we're looking at. And then, of course, the last thing I'll touch on, and there's other aspects in the book. I get into forests and talk about what's happening with that also. But the Arctic and the methane and the thawing permafrost, uh, the methane being the ticking time bomb, which is a phrase that came from NASA, actually, the subsea permafrost that is uh, thawing out as the Arctic Ocean warms, as the sea ice in the Arctic is retreating. And there is enough methane there that has the CO2 equivalent of um, at least as much CO2 as what we've already added to the atmosphere. And it could come out in very, very short order almost any time now. And in fact, I document in the book, I, I talk with a scientist that shows that in fact, it is already starting to be released. The question is, um, when does it speed up and when does that happen? So the point is that uh, any talk that there's still time and we can avert this um, is just simply not being scientifically honest and, and, and looking very squarely at the fact that we are off the cliff. We are living now on an irrevocably changed planet. Many scientists now believe that if we had full stop of all CO2 emissions on a dime, and, and did everything that we could to mitigate, best case scenario, we still have 3C warming baked into the system. And that doesn't sound like a whole lot, 3C, but when we look at the cataclysmic changes that we're already seeing on the planet today, like literally as we speak, broad swaths of the Arctic are on fire. And this is all just from 1.1C. So is that when you say... 3C, is that on top of the 1.1C we've gained since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution? That would be, uh, no, 3C total. 3C so total. basically three times what, we're, what we have right now. So yeah, from 1.1 up to 3. And then there's now um, other predictions that are equally, even more alarming, where even there's a World Bank prediction that uh, some of their assessments that say, you know, we could see 5 to 6C by 2050. All right, so when you say I see 5 to 6 C, what are you saying? Celsius. Right. Just I just, clarifying. I just defer into metrics because the scientific community uh, uses metrics. I do want to say 
something that's really important about this conversation is that many people will approach this and they will hear things um, and they will think, ah, science and things, not for me. Well, we're doing the opposite of that. And and if something doesn't make sense as you're listening and you want to know more, um, we'll provide some, a way for you to get a hold of us and we're definitely going to be able to answer those questions. But I'm going to play the dum-dum and be like, what does that mean? Because at first I thought you meant the sea, like you're measuring it, like the sea will be, will increase five times. And I'm just like, okay, Waterworld, I hated that movie. Thank you for coming, Troy. I invited Troy specifically for his dumb, dumb. Yeah. You were and like, I need a dumb guy. I and I'm like, I'm guy here. Not to say that I'm smart. Just been reading Dar's book and catching up on his lingo. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about your book, Dar, are the personal stories and you going out into the various places. And one that resonates with me is when you went to the Sierra Nevadas and you went to look at the the Sequoia Redwoods. And for some reason, I just have some sort of affinity for the Sequoias, for Redwoods in general, the coastal Redwoods. And, and to read your description about how these trees have been there for thousands of years and they've been able to weather certain types of insects, a lot of different climate shifts and changes, but in your book, you were with these people when they found sequoias that had died, more or less, and it turns out not from kind of the normal causes, they had been infested by a certain beetle. Exactly. So it's, I, I went to Sequoia National Park because to me too, the sequoia, it's the, the iconic tree, you know, the largest single tree by wood volume on the planet. They live often, very often to be over 3000 years old. Uh, they're absolutely massive and they have over the millennia, these naturally developed systems like a certain chemical composition within their own bark that make them uh, essentially wildfire proof and beetle pr and, and insect infestation proof. And they rarely die on their own accord. You know, when they do die, it's usually because they're blown over in a massive storm or something like this. And so I went out into the field with some USGS biologists and one of them, Nate Stevenson, had been studying there uh, for his whole life. He lived in that area, multi-generations, grew up loving the trees. And that was another thing I did in the book is I made sure whenever possible, which was most of the time, going out into the field with scientists who'd spent over a quarter of a century studying that one particular place. So I made sure there were people that had long-term intimate relationships with the things they were studying. And so Nate, we went out into the field and it was a very hot day and we came upon this group of sequoia and he was taught, t teaching me these things about, look, they don't usually die on their own accord. They're basically beetle proof. And there was uh, two or three sequoia that had fallen down and were on the ground and there were still a couple standing, but there were all these dead branches around the ground. And they all started, he and the other biologists with us, picking up these different branches and looking and finding that they were infested with beetles. And they were scratching their head and they were surprised. They were like, we've never seen this. <coughs> Excuse me. And, uh, they looked cl more closely at the tree and sure enough, it had been, it looked, it appeared as though the whole thing had been infested by beetles. And this was literally the first time they'd seen it. They pulled out their plastic Ziploc baggies and were getting samples of the beetle beetles to bring back to the lab. And he just flat out told me like, yes, if this, if this is what happened, then what this means is that 
we're, you know, we're on the end of this giant multi-year California drought and it's weakened these trees enough now that they're susceptible to things that they've never been susceptible to before. Yeah, it was really telling because I grew up in California. I grew up down in uh, Carmel Monterey area and I lived through plenty of different um, uh, dry spells. Uh, so I was surprised to hear that the recent dry spells could cause this sort of effect and damage to them. But reading your book, it sounds like they are so extremely dry, not like the droughts in the past, but they're more or less sucking the moisture out of the ground. Yeah, one thing that um, that hits me immediately with this book is just the realization, and I'll read a quote from it here, um, you know, that most people in the so-called developed world are not connected enough to a place on the planet to notice these things that we're talking about. They're unaware of the dire ramifications of what, that's, what this means, both for the planet and for our species. Can you talk about that disconnect? Um, and this comes out of the indigenous communities quite a bit. We, we question, you know, when did we take the human experience and disconnect that from the ecosystem? Can you talk about that disconnect and then, you know, what's been your journey to reconnect? With that ecosystem fantastic point and and i do believe that is the core cause of this whole crisis is i at some point down the line um you know we can say roughly at the advent of industrial so-called civilization that's when well there's other factors too you know we can point to fundamentalist christianity and religions organized religions role and sort of we have dominion over the earth but all of these things the confluence of these things um, which is happening simultaneous to the industrial revolution. Like there are these resources and it's our right to have them. But anyway, this disconnect started where instead of living in concert with the seasons and growing food and hunting it when it's needed and living uh, on, on earth schedule, instead of starting to get into this paradigm of here's us and there's nature and that disconnect. And that's where I think we went astray. And I think before anything can happen. You know, there's, you know, we talk about these statistics and how fast all of this is happening and it's, it's shocking and it's important to know. And my immediate reaction was like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do? And, you know, you want to fix it. You want to try to help it. But in, in, and I get into some indigenous wisdom and stories in the end of the book and where my work has taken me um, now after this book has been published is further along that path. And what I'm learning is the first thing that needs to happen for me is I need to stop, pause, and go out and reconnect to the earth. Because I need to first start with myself and start solving the problem there. Go out, be quiet, and listen. Because that's how I got the idea to go to a rock. And it wasn't my idea. It was literally this calling. I felt this huge pull. And there was no way I was not going to go over there and write about what I saw. That's just what I knew I needed to go do. I felt like I was just, okay, I'm being told by the earth to go do this thing. And then that went to the BP oil spill. And then ever since then, it's been the climate crisis and this book. I literally was in the mountains and it came to me that this idea, I'm going to do this book. And so that's where I've gotten my my ideas of, of or my, my, uh, my jobs, if you will. And I'm doing it again now. I'm listening and I think I have my next job. But it's always come from like get real quiet, stop, take some deep breaths, go out, listen to the earth because we're each going to get our own specific message of here's what you really need to do. 
we have very little time left while some of these systems are still even functioning. And we need to get real quiet and listen very seriously and get some very serious marching orders because we are in a crisis and we need to behave accordingly. You know, it's interesting uh, to hear you say that. And and um, my first thought is, you know, working in the industry or in an industry where I need to measure sentiment and think about how people may react to a thing. And then I end up with kind of this like argument in my own head with the person who will be consuming the information. It's interesting that you say, you know, hey, the the world will kind of tell you or you'll be inspired. And the first reaction for many people may be to go, ah, I see. I see what's happening here. Um, it, it's this hippie nonsense. But and then I thought about what the world has trained us to do um, as it relates to what are you going to be when you grow up and what are you going to, you know, what are you going to focus on? What are you going to, um, in those business cases, you listen to some of the talk, like the fire in the belly and you're going to know, and you're going to have this, like that, that's pretty much accepted just straight out of the, you know, seven habits of highly successful people. Like, I mean, there's, there's this, this, you know, and your intuition, but when you move it into another arena and you start talking about nature and you start talking about, you know, uh, having, I, I, having spent some time with redwoods, it was the most, the closest I've ever been to what I would call a spiritual experience. Um, it was just silent and, but not silent, but beautiful. And, and, uh, I, I can only describe it as sort of a, like the ground was soft and there wasn't any, sharp rocks or anything. And I just took my shoes off and I was, it was a really interesting experience that I'm still trying to find words to explain. And I, you know, was as sober as could be, but felt absolutely changed, um, transcended. Well, industrialization, I, and I'm, I just swerved away from using the word civilization. Um, I, I prefer, uh, uh, um, Edward Abbey's use of the word syphilisization because it's what's it's essentially what's industrial <laughs> wow. civilization Gotta is besetting the problem uh besetting the earth and and I think that you know anyone that would poo-poo an idea of go get quiet on the earth and just listen and be quiet is and see what comes to you is just try it you know because it comes down to fundamental direct personal experience and you know i would just say you know don't knock until you try it and and it comes from essentially indigenous lifestyle where for millennia this is how humans have lived on the planet and you know there's you know people in on the australian the aboriginal people in australia have been there for minimum 50,000 years we have some recent studies saying maybe it's uh, closer to 100 or even 120,000 years well you know 50,000 years ago they weren't worried about causing the extinction extinction of their own species 10,000 years they weren't worried about you know native americans here weren't worried about causing the extinction of their own species this happened with colonization and industrialization and the current dominant system that's literally causing all of the problems on the planet and so if i talk about um instead of like hey where do you see yourself in five years and where, what job can you get to make more money like that's the problem 
what I'm talking about is a solution that is going back to just simple, basic indigenous common sense of like, it, you know, if we start listening to the planet and, and living closer in harmony with that planet and listening and, and tapping into that source as, as a place of information of how should I be during this time? And then, and then from that, what, what now maybe am I going to do? That's what I'm talking about because, you know, this using our heads to get out of a, a situation that was essentially caused by using our heads, you know, as I, as Einstein pointed out, that's not going to work. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I do also, um, uh, like the notion of being connecting in that space. There is, there are so many people who will go out to beautiful places on the planet and, and bask and revel in that beauty without understanding the precarious nature that we're really destroying it actively. I think about the coral reefs. I think about all of these just stunning places that are actively before our very eyes disintegrating. Being loved to death. Right. I mean, you mentioned the Great Barrier Reef. It's, it's literally, um, you know, scientists in Australia are now saying it's probably not going to be there for another 10 years. In less than 10 years, the single biggest coral reef, 1,400 miles long, will be gone. It will be a non-functional reef. And it's, it's horrible to see the just the bleaching, the mass bleaching, and you look at a vibrant reef and you're like, that is incredible. I want to see more. And then they take it to the bleaching and they talk about how and why and they show you the runoff and they show you kind of oil production and it's really frightening. And in regard to seeing... I'm a visual person and I, I, so reading sometimes is, is hard for my mind to actually conceptualize. So when you talk about the reefs and whatnot, I'm not sure people actually get it unless they're there. And I suppose that's one of the limitations of words in a book. And sometimes people got to go out into nature and see those things. One of the things I saw recently though, uh, is a NASA video that shows the Arctic from 1984 through 2016. And being a visual person, it just blew me away. Because you can talk about, oh, it's lost half of its ice sheet, but when you literally watch it grow smaller and smaller and smaller, it scared the shit out of me. And that's really... I, you know, I, I did my best in the book to try to take people to places that most people won't get to go. You know, like if it weren't for, if it weren't for this book, I would have never gotten gone to go to the Amazon, let alone with Thomas Lovejoy, um, or the Great Barrier Reef or, you know, all these different places of the front lines and then really experience it vis viscerally. And, and I did that. I mean, I mentioned one place, uh, in Alaska that I went to where I used to live in Anchorage for 10 years and do a lot of mountaineering up there. And, and there was an area outside of Anchorage over, um, uh, on the way to Seward, it's about an hour out of Anchorage. And there was a place called the Byron Glacier. And I would go hike up it to go climb Byron Peak. And it was about a two to 300 foot thick glacier, just right on the valley floor. And then that was when I lived up there. And then I went back to work on the book. So this is roughly 16 years after I had climbed there. And I walked in, I hiked in this valley just to go see it because I was there. And the whole glacier is gone. And it, it where I used to climb. And, and I, it felt literally like a gut punch, like, oh, my God. And I, I looked up the valley and all that's left of it is this like remnant hanging glacier, like 
500 feet up the valley, like basically retreating up into the mountain and, and to feel that and that, you know, what happens to the planet is what happens to us. You know, that's the thing is like this disconnection from the planet is insane that if we think we can cause this kind of harm to the planet and we're going to come through this somehow unharmed is absolute insanity. And not just because of the aesthetics of losing a glacier, but what are you going to drink when all that ice is gone? What do you, what's going to happen when we have unregulated uh, naturally regulated controls that, you know, these systems are breaking down and temperature increases that are causing parts of the planet to literally be uh, unlivable by humans and, and the, the amount of species being lost in all of this and really just bring that to people so that they can really experience it viscerally. And, you know, the, the end product of the book for me is that I, the one thing I hoped would happen by writing it is just that people would read it and then put it down and then go back out and, and reconnect into the planet. If, if that's the only thing that happens, uh, from somebody who reads this book, then I am happy. That's, that's what I want because that's going to start this reconnection planet. Because when you look, when you really are awed by something and respect it are in, and are most importantly in love with it, then you're going to care a lot and you're going to take care of it. And so that's what I hope is, is, is at least one result of this book. I, oh, I definitely say that landed on me that way. I definitely, when I read it, had visceral reaction. I just had a visceral reaction when you talked about the glacier and then I flashed back to the Redwoods and I'm like thinking to myself, they'll be gone and those wonderful, powerful trees won't be there anymore. So you, I think you did, especially the beginning story you open up with, which I won't tell because we'll leave that for the readers to go check out but it it's it's pretty awesome yeah i definitely want to um make sure we convey that this is not just a, a climate crisis book that just tells some doom and gloom stats this is a journey that you're with dar on these experiences you kick off the book page one with a a spine chilling experience of a life a life or death situation uh on this ice sheet that you're that you're hiking and climbing and um the way that it's written you can't put the book down the way that it's written it's to the point where you're wanting to experience this with with you dar so ode to that and and it i want to say that because a lot of us are avoiding this subject even for me when i came to see you speak at uw it was because someone had told me someone that i care about and love told me Michael, your, your vision of this Green New Deal and this 12 years number from, you know, the IPCC report telling us that we have 12 years left, you got to go see Dar talk. Um, yeah, IPC, inter, I should explain that, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, those scientists, you know, telling us this conservative number of just 12 years left to save the planet, um, it's it's to the point where we have to kind of take a step back and check ourselves. Um, and when I heard you speak, it was amazing. I got immediately involved into fighting for the planet with Extinction Rebellion, doing a lot of direct action, nonviolent civil disobedience for the planet. Um, but I still didn't read the book because still within me, there was something that said, don't look at it. You can fight for it, but still don't look at the numbers. It's too scary. Um, I want to encourage everyone that read it. It's time to look at it. 
and it's not going to be a scary experience reading this book. Um, it's going to be experience where you actually get to connect with you on these experiences when you're on these journeys around the planet seeing this. So I wanted to say thank you for writing it the way that you did and encourage other people too. Um, I actually have a question for you, uh, Michael and Jason. The two of you are um, uh, have been a, a real your refrain on you got to care and you've got I mean, I, I come from a, a a space in my head where I just sometimes don't have room for that. And it and it's wonderful to have people kind of course correct me. I'm wondering what to your point is reading that book is reading Dar's work. Does that give you hope? And and then maybe we throw it to you. And does that mean there's hope? I'll say, no, it's not even about hope. And you had, before we started, um, made a, a beautiful analogy that this is like the planets on hospice. And, you know, when the planet's in that life or death situation, it's not even about like, oh, can we save the planet? It's more so just let's connect with the planet and love it so viciously and so unconditionally. And let's fight for it regardless of what the outcome's going to be. And that will take away all the anxiety that you have over the planet. All that anxious feeling that we have like, oh, can we save it? Oh, I should look at the stats, it's too scary. Fight for it and love for it. And that's what this book is really about. I did take that away and I still have anxiety. I heard the message and especially the last few sentences in your book spoke to me and, and I needed to go take action. Um, yet I think as everyone will go through a process when they have somebody who's in hospice. I'm somewhere on that spectrum and I haven't quite gotten to that feeling at peace about it, which is, which is interesting. And it's particularly interesting to talk to people who've read this book. And I feel like they're in a sense of denial, basically like, Oh, he's just a, you know, he's too big for their their space, like they're, you know, are they, are the people who are just trying to survive? Or are they literally like, nope, don't see it. Fake news. No, it's not even just that. It's, it's just like, oh, he's a, uh, scare tactics. It's, it's scaremongering. It's, it's really not this bad. That's wow. such a different interpretation than yeah, like, it's I know. Michael, what you what said really uh, gave me chills. Like I could feel my arm hairs kind of stand up <laughs> on, on edge. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, Michael, that really, what you pointed out is, 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 deeply insightful because when I first had the idea to do this book, so I was going to basically, it was going to be a science book. Like it was essentially, I write these monthly climate dispatches for the website where I uh, publish them truth out. And they're essentially a 30 day horror show of here just in the last month. These are the scientific studies that have been published. And then these are the extreme events around the planet. And it's only the last 30 days. And you read each one and you put all everything all in one place. And, and it's like deep breath. Okay, we are in it. We, this is going down right now at this moment. And I thought, okay, I'm going to just basically do a book of those. Literally, that was my plan. But then when I actually went out and started going into the field and working on the book and then taking the notes and then coming home and writing these chapters, the book flipped it. It was going to be like 75-25 science story. 
And then once I actually started writing it, it flipped itself. That wasn't me. Literally the process just said, no, this is going to be stories and personal and the scientist stories driving this book and writing about nature itself and then getting a bit philosophical at the end. And that, that wasn't by design. That wasn't my idea. And so that, that I think was something that came through and it's just where, you know, we're not in control of this situation and we never were. And I think, you know, this idea of like, we can save the earth again, there's that disconnect. No, we are part of the earth. You know, we, we don't save the earth. We can damage it. Absolutely. And we can do things now to try to uh, carry out some reparations, but we are part of it. The earth is so much bigger than us. And we are at a point now that we have to have, we have, I personally have to exercise enough humility to understand that we don't know where this is going to go. I, that's why this is so heavily cited in the book with, with the scientific studies and the reports, et cetera. So that if people think it's exaggerated, well, here's the study from NASA, or here's the study from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So I, I try to nip that in the bud and then it just comes down to, well, if someone's in their own process and they're just not willing to see it yet, well, that's where they are. And I respect that, you know, but here's the data. But the thing is, um, I think, you know, part of, uh, one of the ails of industrial civilization in this dominant paradigm that we're in is, well, we have to have hope. And I think that's a product of this in gross infantilization that's happened over the years of a dumbing down of the country and the, the you know, the cutting of education and the cutting of critical thought and all of this. And we have to have hope or someone's going to save us instead of us taking full personal responsibility of, of what's happening. And, and so I, I get in, I address hope at the end of the book. And one of the quotes I include from um, Vaclav Havel, a Czech dissident writer and statesman, addressing hope directly as he says, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. And to me, that's a really adult, mature perspective. And it comes down to morality. Am I going to go do something because it's the right thing to do? Or am I going to look, oh, it looks like we're going to lose anyway, so I'm just not going to do it. Or it's like, you know, my friend's in hospice with three weeks to live. He's going to die anyway, so screw it. No, no one in their right mind is going to do that if you care about this person. And, and if, if they do, they're kind of broken. There's something wrong. There's a disconnect. Very broken. Yep. You know, it's like, no, I'm going to go give full attention and go love this person and help take care of them the best I can. Relationship. That's what just came to my mind. Absolutely. So what was broken? That person's not in relationship with the other person who's in hospice. We're not in relationship with our earth. And to anyone who you know, gets to a piece of this book or is afraid to read it, that quote that you just read from the book on hope is at the end. Like you got to get through it <laughs> to really soak in the entire meaning of it. So please do. I'm, I'm, um, I'm deeply moved by the discussion because I, um, I live a life of, of service to community and to people. Um, I have a, a commitment to relationships and connecting and, and you know when you're not connected, and you know when you are connected, you feel it. Um, and the idea to, to kind of hear the both of you speak to that, it's, it is that we have been living in a state of reckless consumption and disconnection and all of that stuff, but it's the idea that it's, no, no, it's not save the earth, it's 
save yourself. Be a part of the ecosystem that you're living in. Be you, and you can see the story is told across the globe of we're poisoning the environment. You've got, you know, flints where children are exposed to high levels of lead and what all of the other things that are going on. Um, that's damaging generations of people. It's uh, it's horrifying. And then you think, well, no, wait, I'm what am I going to do to save it? And you think connecting, thinking being in your space and realizing you are just as much a part, you are the world. And, you know, I mean, that's so stupid, but it's, you're, you know, and I, I say stupid, I mean, it's so simple. Then that's when you're like, wait a minute, sometimes the simplest stuff is the most poignant and important. Well, the truth is always simple when it gets all the way down to it. And it's seemingly obvious once you see it, like, oh, why didn't, it was right in front of my face all along. You know, right. that, that is the solution. And again, it just keeps coming back to that reconnect, reconnect, reconnect. Did you experience any scientists who were, seemed to be in doubt? And I asked that question because I saw an interview where it seems that's the case. Okay. In, in doubt of... Well, I guess when I say in doubt, I mean like they're... Or in denial of what's happening. Uh, um, not at least the folks that I talked to in the book and some of them explicitly say, you know, like, for example, I'm on the Great Barrier Reef with uh, uh, one of the scientists there, an Australian marine scientist, and I cite this 2011 study that was published by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And the scientist, Dean Miller, uh, you know, he commented on the report. He said, well, the report says, you know, at current trajectories, we would lose uh, functioning coral reefs on the planet by 2050, likely. And he said he thought that report was way too conservative. It's going to happen way sooner than that. And, and, and observational evidence, not projections, not studies, observational evidence, i.e. reality, i.e. what is happening, is showing us that we are seeing annual thermal events in the ocean, meaning warm, warmer than normal temperatures that are hitting coral reefs every year. And uh, the average coral reef takes 10 to 12 years to recover from one bleaching event, meaning if they're being bleached every year, they're going away. And that's why between 2015 and 2017, because of coral bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef in total, uh, of what's bleached over 50% is now gone in three years. So that's how fast things are happening. And, and so many of the scientists I spoke with, and then Dan Fagri, a USGS scientist at uh, Glacier National Park, we were talking about glaciers. And he said, um, look, you know, we're, everything's happening so fast. Like it, he called it a, a nuclear explosion of geologic change is, is what he said. And it's happening so fast on like geologic change happening on human timescales, not geologic timescales that, you know, we're losing these systems. And he was talking about glaciers specifically and then forests. And he said, you know, there's one line in the book where he said, you know, yeah, but ultimately in the long run, this stuff will recover and I started to kind of get my hopes up. And he said, but then not on a time scale that includes humans. So, and again, like I, <laughs> I, 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 it's very doomy. 
Um, but I, I go there and then I, in the book, or I should say the book ended itself the way that it did, because, um, we have to have, and this is where I, the hardcore journalist part in me and the, the, the guy that went into Fallujah comes out and says, we have to see reality. We live in this culture of make-believe. We're being fed shit every day in the media. We have a reality TV nincompoop, you know, uh, baboon. words fail me. That's an insult to baboons, but we'll go with that. <laughs> Sitting in the office of the presidency like... Because we we won't see and deal with reality in the right way. And that's why I ended up going into Iraq and putting my ass on the line for off and on for 10 years there. And then that's why I've written this book. And it's really, really hard information to take in. It was really hard for me to write about it. But I've done that and I, I've come through the other side and I spend the majority of, not all, but the majority of my time in something like acceptance now. And it means that what I do for the planet, I do it with more conviction and mindfulness than I did uh, when I was on the other side of this. I'm imagining that there is um, a sort of freedom in that where you're like, there's a lot of garbage that I don't want to deal with. Not, don't even want to, don't have time. I'm, you know, priorities kind of being whittled down. I, I see our, uh, uh, again, I won't, I mean, you know, beautiful, amazing creatures. I can't, uh, <laughs> can't make the correlation, but I can say, um, as a indicator of social illness and, a, a kind of a, an erosion of that moral fortitude or that, you know, that, that doing the thing because it's the right thing, um, not because, the right thing is to be the strongest person in the room. And, you know, it's it's about quality of character and commitment to other human beings. I think that we are seeing a lot of things change and shift and 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 decay. Uh, very specifically, you look at the the president, the office of the president and and the presidency in general, in my mind, has changed dramatically. It has opened my eyes to the fact that this is a human construction a, a thing that in and a beautiful system when it's being utilized but we've not taken good care of the human system um the social network the social and i don't mean digital social network but neighbors and the world and we're just consuming and consuming and yeah i mean there's a lot of symptoms that you can see i think trump's part of that i wanted to um read a quote from the book, but I'm going to pass it back to you so you can pronounce this person's last name. The Scottish-American naturalist, author, philosopher, and early wilderness preservation advocate. Oh, uh, John, John Muir. John Muir captured my feelings precisely. Quote, I am losing precious days. I am degenerating into a machine for making money. I am learning nothing in this trivial world of men. I must break away and get out into the mountains and learn the news. I think that yeah, kind of picks up where you left off on absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, and I hope that's not too esoteric for people that are listening because it speaks to me. Um, I have been doing some work in that space, but this is the environmental piece. Um, I've always been, uh, I'll, I'll put my cans on, most of my cans in the recycling bin. Um, but this is more than that. There's an intersectionality that speaks to really every human ill 
every social, I mean, there's something really big here and I'm, I'm just starting to see it. Well, how, how insane are we as a species, as industrialized humans, where we have to remind ourselves to take care of the thing that keeps us alive? I mean, we're not going to last that long if there's not breathable air or drinkable water or we can't grow food. We're just not going to. And, you know, that we've become so, we've allowed ourselves to become so disconnected that we have to be reminded of these, I would think, pretty obvious truths that, you know, obviously indigenous people got it and lived in concert and harmony for tens of thousands of years and, and then you know, introduce colonization and empire and greed. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a real problem. And, and the thing is though, it's, uh, I love that you read that John Muir quote, because I literally two days ago came out of a four day backpacking trip in the Olympics with a 16 year old nephew who I can tell you that he was lost and he needed a little direction and he came up here and he is, on fire now just from a four day we saw beauty we saw sunsets we saw deer we saw mount olympus and and just had this amazing trip just talking a lot and sharing stories and this kid's plugged in now you know and that wasn't me i mean i facilitated it but that was because he connected in with the planet and he saw stuff he'd never seen before and he is now changed for the rest of his life and I had someone do that for me when I was a kid too. I had an uncle that took me into the mountains and now I've been a mountain junkie ever since. And, <laughs> and it's where I go to ground back in and get clear and remember this is what we're fighting for. Absolutely. Um, and that reminds me too. It's like, I just left the corporate world, corporate sales, 10 years of just being dived into it. And not just me, but I noticed a lot, I would say a good 80, 90% of my coworkers we're just so done with this corporate machine that we're working in. And I had to come to a realization, okay, yeah, I'm going to be an activist, but doesn't quite necessarily pay the bills. So what do I do outside of the corporate world? And there's um, an awesome piece of the book that I want to read. Uh, Those who spend time in nature, whether as a climber, a gardener, a backpacker, a herbalist, a fisher person or hunter, have our own version of what Aldo, Aldo Leopold referred to as ecological education. We are acutely aware of the changes already upon us. And it hit me at that moment when I read that. That's what I want to do. You know, whether it's while I'm doing something in activism or if it's once I take my break, um, as many do, I want to dive back into nature. Um, and it also reminded me too of the corporate world how a lot of my coworkers would check out by going on hikes, like going, you know, grabbing the tent and going to, you know, camp out. And it's like, that's the most simple life that there is. And it's like, we're already wanting that. We're, we're spending our vacation time to go do it. So it's like, let's get back into that lifestyle. Also, we just don't have a culture that affords or even respects the passing of knowledge and the, you know, going with your family member mentoring and just talking and just talking about the world and your place in it and pulling apart the things that you see and really evaluating and, and taking a critical eye in a healthy way, taking a look at the people around you and who's been your sort of role model to now. And if you're feeling that something's not quite resonating, how, 
how do you get back to center? That's right. And, you know, another way to look at it, I mean, if you're talking about one of these corporate giant CEOs with billions and billions of dollars, yet these so many of these people are those who are responsible for causing this crisis, what kind of disconnect must they be living in? Most of them have families and children of their own and grandchildren that they can go do that, literally killing the planet while they make their billions and they have grandchildren. The only way psychologically and spiritually you can pull that off is to have such an utter complete disconnect that you think that your actions are not going to leave the planet in disarray and toxicity for your grandkids. I mean, that says it all, you know, and there's a great Native American uh, scholar. He's passed away, but Jack Forbes, and he wrote a book called Columbus and Other Cannibals. And he talks about something he calls it Waitiko disease. And it's essentially a, a psychosis that means if you have it, you think it's okay to take another person's resources or life. And he basically characterizes colonization and those who do the colonizing and the settling and the expansionism and all of the brutality that comes with it is they're infected with Waitiko disease. And it's catching to anyone, even in some indigenous people can catch it and start behaving that way. And you can see it, right? I mean, basically just look at every member of the GOP, like you're staring right at someone infected completely with Waitiko disease, which is a psychosis. And these people, these are literally psychopaths that, that walk into a room and think, well, you know, it's just business. And that then justifies whatever I'm going to do and take whatever I want from whomever I want, whenever I want. And that is the problem. And the antithesis to that is deep reconnection to each other, to all the other species. And that's why in indigenous cultures, they talk, you hear that saying a lot, all my relations. You know, that's how they'll end prayers. That's how they'll end songs. All my relations. It's me and I am related to everything, every tree, every bird, every rock. And every action I take needs to take all of that into consideration. And just being species specific, that means whatever I do, that's going to meet, that's going to affect my young 16 year old nephew that I just hung out with for a week it's going to affect him in the future. So I need to, I need to walk on the earth with that kind of mindfulness. Yes. And I remember something you said at that same presentation that Michael was talking about earlier, and it just really landed on me. Uh, I can't, the, what the person asked was something like, what's going to help solve this? What I remember you saying was the word love. And it, you mentioned that to me. I remember you saying that's what you had heard. You, we talked about, it, I think, right here in the space. Yes, yeah, right. yeah. And it it just really landed on me because it it's one word, and I think it captures a lot of what we're talking about. Reconnecting with that love because that disease that you brought up, love's void in that disease. No, <laughs> that, no, a psychopath is not feeling any love. <laughs> That's for sure. You know, and it sounds, it might sound cliche, you know, oh, love, now here we are, you know, tree hug or whatever. But it comes down to if, if, if you, if you're in right relation to the planet, uh, I mean, let me put it this way. I like the trip I just mentioned, I'm out in the Olympics and I'm, I'm, um, our last night up there, we're camping at a pass at 6,700 feet and the sun setting through these clouds and golden, uh, beams of light of the 
8.30 sun, sunsets 8.55. So you can, you know, that color, that hue of gold is literally like filtering through the clouds and illuminating this entire valley. There's a, literally two young buck deer walking through the rocks up right above our camp, literally probably 20 feet away. Like there's Mount Olympus right out there to the west. There's Mount Anderson and the Eel Glacier, you know, lighting up in that kind of evening light. The clouds up above are, you know, bathed in orange. You know, the, 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 uh, the needles range in the Olympics is behind us and all lit up in sunlight. And, and I'm out there and this is our planet. And how can you not feel love? How can you not be in awe and amazement and respect and gratitude? And, and if, if I'm feeling that about a place, then I'm going to care about it. And then I'm going to take requisite action to protect it. I wish that people could uh, have seen your face as you were describing that because <laughs> you went to there. Like I, I literally saw you, you were like motioning, you know, you, you were there. You had and your eyes shut. You were, you were, you, you were pointing like Mount Olympus is over there yeah. pointing to the right. You know, I did go there. He was looking. That was at, awesome. He wasn't here. I mean, he was here with us, but it was, you know, to, to recount that and to have that foundational kind of space to do that stuff. Um, that's pretty powerful. There are a lot of very heady, important things that we covered in the podcast, um, a lot of materials and things. What do you recommend for people as we kind of move closer to wrapping up for, uh, for this episode? Um, but when we look to the future, how do you move people to the space of being connected and then from that space knowing what to do? I think it's that same thing. I think it's what we just spoke of again. And any anybody can have that deep connecting experience. You don't have to go way up into the Olympics. I think just everybody has, I mean, just think about it. If I say, okay, what's, where's your favorite place to go in nature? You know, I mean, some places it just might be a, a city park. It might be trees. It might be a stream. It might be bird watching. It might be the Pacific Ocean. It might be the mountains. It may not be all beaches and all these different things. But where is that place? You know, and I, I end the book with a story by uh, Daryl Wilson. He's an elder from the Pitt River Nation in Northeastern California. And he talks about a story in the mountain named that his people call Akuyet, which is their name for uh, Mount Shasta, a very large 14,000 and change foot uh, volcano in northeastern California. And he talks about how there is a spirit force that lives inside the mountain called Mis Misa. And that this spirit force is singing and it's that singing that keeps the earth in harmony. It keeps the seasons rolling along on time. It keeps the earth the right distance from the moon and it just keeps everything in the universe in order. And that singing is contingent upon people listening to it mm. in the right way and that people need to go climb that mountain and listen and comport their lives in the right way so that when they go up there, they can listen very, very quietly and in the right way and actually hear it. And as long as people do that, then everything Mis Misa will keep singing and everything will remain in harmony. 
But if people stop listening, then Mis Misa will stop singing and everything will go out of harmony and life across earth therein vulnerable to extinction. And I include that story in the book because that that to me is when I realized, when that story was told to me by a Native American elder, then I realized why a young kid as far back as probably eight years old when I saw my first picture of a mountain in a textbook in Houston, Texas, <laughs> why I've been obsessed with the mountains ever since. And it's because I've known since then because that's where I go to listen. And so where is your place in nature that you go to listen? And when is the last time that you went there? That was an amazing story. And I think one that we can leave the audience with to ponder on that note um, I definitely want to thank you, Dar. We're not concluding right now, but uh, I, I want to express my thanks. And I also want to talk about what um, what we can do next. We talked a lot about connecting with nature and where can people do that. Um, I'll just kind of throw throw that one out there to everybody. What? Well, we know, and thanks to. Uh, the great Swedish activist Greta Thunberg, who keeps reminding us that action is the antidote to despair. And there's plenty of despair to go around, not just on this topic, that's for sure. So find something to do and get very, very busy. And regarding, you know, for example, climate crisis action, I can't think of anything better than Extinction Rebellion. It is spreading around the globe uh, very rapidly at this point and is now making its presence felt uh, more and more powerfully across this country with some big actions in the pipeline. And I am a big fan of them and have written about them uh, back in November when they were getting up to speed and, and, and like to do whatever I can to support them. And then there's, of course, <clears throat> plenty of other good books to read, one of them being Jack Forbes's book to get really informed on some of the roots of this crisis and, and things like that. Awesome. Of course, End of Ice by our <laughs> guest, Dar. Please yes, read that. Don't forget that one. That is the poetic experience of, of going through these experiences that we just talked about. So, yeah, we're going to do. I, I just did a quick search on um, some of the local uh, bookstores uh, that are selling the book and um, there, there are a lot of phenomenal reviews and some discussion groups that pop up around it in a digital space, which is interesting. So I think that that is something that we'll, we'll definitely share. Um, yeah. The, uh, now I'm going to read the book um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it because it's been a while since I have actually read a paper book. Um, I, I know it's ridiculous, but I, everything I do is digital and I'm, I'm, you know, I, and I, I read very significant, heavy stuff, but, um, but I feel like it's appropriate to kind of have a tactile kind of experience with that. But, um, I, I want to say, uh, Dar, your, uh, your insight and your process and, you know, this has been this kind of a, a roller coaster of sort of discussion and emotion. Cause you're like, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm there, I'm, you know, things are rough. And then, you know, Michael Graham, the things that you're saying about just, you know, your anxiety does kind of go away a bit when you think about 
things through the lens of love, as you were saying, and that taking care of the earth is taking care of yourself. And, you know, there's stuff there that resonates with me that I have kind of closed up for a while and I'm looking forward to reading. But thank you so much. Really uh, very moving. Well, and thank all three of you. This has really been a, a, a brilliant, fantastic, enjoyable conversation, really. Absolutely one of the best, if not the best, since, uh, since I've been doing media for the book. And hope we can do it again sometime. And thanks for what you're doing. And it's great to know you. And I look forward to hanging out some more in the future. Awesome. Thank you, Dar. It's a process and it's a journey. So I hope we get to go along with you. And this has been It Ends With Us. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you once again, Dard, for being our guest today. All right, this is the Better Left Network, and we will have more podcasts coming in the future. For now, Jason and Michael Graham, uh, Dar, thank you all for coming, and we will um, uh, talk to you soon. Seriously. Thank you, guys. Wow. This was amazing, uh, really. Unexpected, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I,